Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This episode will be a bit of a departure for the show in that although our guests may be familiar with some, if not most, of our listeners, the topic we'll be discussing is not of the normal fare you'd come to expect from the show since we'll be discussing a modern-day unsolved serial murder case, that of the Long Island serial killer, and specifically the circumstances surrounding the death of Shannon Gilbert, who vanished from the community of Oak Beach on the night of May 1st, 2010, and whose remains were located in a large patch of marshland adjacent to Oak Beach neighborhood 19 months later. It was the search for Shannon Gilbert that led to the discovery of a large number of the victims attributed to the Long Island serial killer. Our guest Robert Anderson has spoken on the Lisk case before at the Baltimore Jack the Ripper and True Crime Conference, which we released as a podcast back in May, and a subsequent conversation he had with Professor Charles Sumoso over dinner, which we'll be referring to is included as a bonus recording at the end of this podcast. I've wanted him as a guest for a long, long time, and we're pleased to finally welcome him to the show. Hello, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me on. Now, you finally run me to ground. Finally. Now, we'll have Robert back. Uh, he's promised to come back and talk about um, the Jack the Ripper uh, case and um, get into detail about his thoughts on that. But uh, I'll take what I can get. So t- tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in criminology and what led to your current focus on the Long Island serial killer case. All right. Well, I think that one of the things you find is a common thread between uh, most ripperologists is of some degree of a morbid childhood. And uh, my father had uh, Rumbelow's book uh, in, in, in our home library. And, you know, at a fairly you know young age, I remember seeing the Kelly photo. And, you know, frankly, I wish I hadn't. And I still, if I could do, undo one aspect of ripperology. I'd really wish the you know the Mary Jane Kelly photos were not publicly available because frankly, once seen, they cannot be unseen. Anyhow, uh, I had an interest in true crime, you know, as as a young lad, uh, and uh, when. You know, I grew up in Hicksville, New York, which is not far from the scene of you know the, much of the action in the List case. And uh, you know, I grew up in you know sort of like a lower end of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. And you know, we have a Facebook group where we discuss Long Island serial killer, and actually, quite a few of my childhood friends are. Our members, and I think one thing we'd all say collectively is that there, but for the grace of God, go we, because uh, you know it, it would not have been hard, not it would not have been difficult to take a very wrong turn in our lives back then. And uh, quite a few of us are lucky that uh, we never seriously fell afoul of law enforcement, and some of my friends did, uh, and some of my friends are no longer with us. So the case resonated with me, uh, and uh, as far as you know, any degree of you know, like uh, professional bona fides, uh, I went to Brown University. I was originally going to study geology, specifically petroleum geology. So I have some degree of a background in science, uh, but after a year and a half, we banded that because it turns out that I'm a monochromat, i.e. I see in black and white. This is not a good thing for a geologist, but I've always had, uh, I've been left with an interest in science and medicine all along. And after I graduated from uh 
graduate school, I wound up on Wall Street, where I was a, what's colloquially known as a bond trader for 20 years. And after that, I wound up getting reinvolved in biotech and pharmaceutical industry. So I've had the advantage for quite some time of having access to a lot of scientists. And since I'm a neophyte, so to speak, and they're professionals, you know, over the years, you know, we've you know had to learn how to speak each other's language. So the nice thing is I've had access to a whole lot of you know people. Like for example, one of the guys that was you know in in our lab, it was formerly the dean of research at the Harvard Medical School. So these are not you know. These are not just amateurs. And, you know, when someone like that, when you can ask him a question about, like, the gas chromatography tests run on the Maybrick Diary, you can actually get an informed opinion back. So I've been blessed that way. Uh, and obviously, in, you know, recent years, a group of, you know, I'd say senior reporologists, you know, we've been working together, you know, using the name as uh, under the name of Team Syphilis. And while our first talk was indeed about the scientific testing of the Maybrick diary and the history of that, uh, you know, probably our, our, the talk that we're best known for was about syphilis in Whitechapel in 1888 and its implications for the Jack the Ripper case. And uh, we got asked to present at Baltimore, and we all kind of collectively felt that, well, well we're, we're, it's time to take a busman's holiday from Jack the Ripper. And someone suggested, well, what about the Long Island serial killer? I didn't know much about it. Read, you know, started reading on the internet, uh, and I said, Jesus, you know, this is this really hits home. I mean, because as a child, my parents actually took me to the beach next to uh, Tobey Beach, which is right next to Gilgo. I mean, you know, I, I I grew up near there, and so I was just saying this case quite resonated with me. And then I read Lost Girls by you know Robert Kolker, which I think is one of the best pieces of American true crime writing uh, that's out there. I mean, I think it's second only to True, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Capote's work in Cold Blood. In Cold Blood, thank you. Drawing a blank on that, uh, and what I immediately realized was that it was very, very difficult, as well written it was, since it wasn't chronologically ordered, it was very hard to sort of like come up with a cohesive narrative of the case. So we all started collectively building timelines and just trying to, you know, get you know, just sort of get the facts as they were in the list case together. Because if you simply read Lost Girls or you go, you know, from the internet, you, you're really actually going to get, it's a web of, it's a web of confusion, no pun intended. So trying to come up with a list of like, what are the real facts that we know, as opposed to rumors and all that, and trying to get some sense of order and try to make some sense of the case. And so we presented at Baltimore and here I am. So you're one of those that followed the Long Island serial killer case from day one. Then, no, I, I actually I, I I had you know there's there's been some front page coverage in the Times, and like I knew of 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 the of the situation, but actually no, it wasn't until uh, you know about eight months before Baltimore that. Uh, all of us started to like drop everything and start looking at Long Island serial killer. I mean, so we've got. I mean, so basically, seven ripperologists have spent like eight months in the preparation of this talk. So, uh, which, which which doesn't make us experts, and you know, we're prone to error like any other you know collaborative team. 
and 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 we've had internal disagreements along the way on you know because one of the things you know we had like some knockdown drag down fights behind the scene over Shannon Gilbert uh, because the fact of the matter is all roads in the list case lead through Shannon Gilbert and you you know there's a fork there and you either decide that she's not a victim and you take your research goes in one direction or you decide she is and your research goes in a whole different uh, direction but you can't ignore it. Right. Now, without, and, and we, um, without rehashing your Baltimore conference talk, can you describe your take on the death of Shannon Gilbert? Yeah, I think, I think it was a tragic accident. And I think that there's a lot of elements to her death that don't fit with what we believe we know about Lisk's MO. Uh, there's a couple of key points that distinguish Shannon from Amber, Maureen, Melissa, and Megan, and uh, it has to do with the fact that Brewer established direct contact with her, right? So, not only did Shannon know the name of the person she was going to visit, her driver knew as well. And basically, most of Shannon Gilbert's normal defense mechanisms, which were having a cell phone, having a driver, making calls to the driver from the John's house, those are all intact. And that's very different from the scenario that is presented with the rest of the Gilgo Four. So right there, we sort of thought, hmm, this is not quite the same. Uh, and then you get into issues of, uh, you know, well, Okay, she was there for many hours, and suddenly things go, you know, off the rails. Why'd they go off the rails? And you know, we attribute it to you know uh, use of you know an unknown substance, whether it be synthetic marijuana, uh, ecstasy, whatever. You know, to get uh, you know, it's clear that the. The evening is really not going all that well, if you think about it. I'm not talking about once, you know, she's just making this frantic 911 call. I'm just saying it doesn't sound like it's a successful visit. And, you know, because you've got Brewer sort of saying, I, I think this is, might be a man. And, you know, it just doesn't sound like things were normal. Uh, but the fact that it wasn't normal doesn't mean that she was murdered. It's just, you know, it just it's another puzzle on top of the enigma wrapped in the you know conundrum that is the Shannon Gilbert episode. Uh, as you had said, Brewer was the um, the client who um, right. she was taken to Oak Beach to service. Right. The, the whole thing with the Gilgo Four uh, is we don't know the name of the John they went to visit as their last trick. Shannon Gilbert, we you know we 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 know, and not only did she know. Her drive, more importantly, her driver knew. Right. It's very different than the Lisk MO. Right. This opinion you have on the Gilbert case, she um, dying accidentally there in Oak Beach, you believe has been buttressed by you gaining access to the content of the medical examiner's report, um, her autopsy, which is not public record. Right. Uh, before we go into the medical examiner's report in detail, how did you come about getting its contents? Uh, somebody that uh, 
listened to the podcast, reached out to me and asked if I was interested in, uh, you know, learning the contents of Shannon's autopsy report. And, and I'm not talking about the autopsy performed by uh, Dr. Baden. I'm talking about the one performed in December of 2011 by Dr. Sims Child out in Suffolk. And needless to say, you know, the answer is, of course, yes. Uh, I'm, you know, very interested, to put it mildly. Uh, right, and we have uh, two competing, uh, just uh, I'm kind of playing like uh, my audience doesn't, it isn't isn't up to speed as much on this case as every as you and or I might be or some of our listeners. But so what happened was is that the official medical examiner's report that ruled her death as an accidental drowning came out, and then her family hired Michael Bodden, the uh, renowned forensic scientist. Um, to conduct his own independent investigation, and he released a second autopsy report after examining her remains that are in conflict with the the official medical examiner's report. Basically, you have two competing camps here, right? Right, and some of Baden's uh, suggestions, uh, specifically that you know there was a drill hole in Shannon's hyoid bone, you know, is just really you know candidly, it's just risible. Uh, you know, if you actually see the size of a hyoid bone, you'd you'd realize immediately that you know there's basically no drill bit small enough to actually drill into the hyoid bone of a living victim. You know, because Bond's narrative is that you know there's evidence that Shannon Gilbert was tortured, and he's pointing to the drill hole in her hyoid as. Uh, you know, uh, as exhibit number one for this thesis. And, you know, as Dr. Tomosa said in the conversation we had in Baltimore, which is part of an earlier podcast, uh, you're not going to be able to drill into the hyoid bone of somebody who's alive and screaming. It's just, you know, it's just physically not possible. And and I think one of our slides has one of the members of the team holding up, uh, you know, something that's sort of a to scale hyoid bone in the appropriate part of your throat. So you can see, you know, exactly what you're dealing with. You're dealing with something that's like, you know, about the size, oh, sorry, about the width of uh, something you would use for shish kebab. In fact, it's actually even thinner than that. So... That theory, that 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 that's actually the, the hyoid bone drill hole is one of the things that like immediately draw our attention. It's like how how do you would you do that? And the medical examiner's report actually, you know, we when we can get to that sort of addresses the issue of the hyoid bone. I, I think successfully. Right. But, well, there, there's I, a number of um, myths I would say that have become fact over the repetition in the Shannon Gilbert case that the medical examiner's report doesn't seem to substantiate. Like you, you, you can go into some of those in more detail, but, um, right. Like well, her, her, uh, her clothing and, you know, things like that. Yeah. I think, I think we, I think we can methodically, uh, work our way through the report. And, and one of the things I'll say is that, uh, one of the things I'm not going to do is quote extensively from the autopsy report. It, it is a you know an unreleased document. Uh, one of the things that I'm concerned about, as well as the person who shared it with me, is we didn't want to be accused of uh, obstruction of justice because this is a live case. Uh, 
one could argue that you know a just simply publishing the autopsy report would reveal some details known only to Lisk or the or whoever murdered Shannon if indeed she was murdered and obviously the official conc- police conclusion from these aut- this autopsy is that she wasn't murdered and I think I think the report substantiates that. Right. And um, before we go any further, for the record, I want to make it clear to our audience that you and I discussed releasing, with in conjunction with talking to your source, releasing the if the autopsy report as uh, th- through the podcast, uh, being that some folks consider this a media outlet, but after talking with an attorney and speaking with you and the person who supplied you with this information we came to and also um i think you consulted a couple other uh uh, opinions on the matter we decided that because of the fact that the feds have claimed that they are going to re-examine the case and that there might be things within the medical examiner's report that we don't know which specifically they are, but nevertheless that they might believe that only the killer would be aware of. It would be against our best interests, to put it mildly. To yeah, we're, we're, we're going to err on the side of cons- being conservative, uh, right? You know, but, and also another thing that discussion we- discussion was we we did discuss you know, the pros and cons of making this thing public and did err on the side of caution. Right. And, and if some, if some other, uh, entity or person can obtain the autopsy report through legitimate channels and put it out there, I, I'd say, you know, pl- you know, please, uh, because I think that wide dissemination of the autopsy report would put an end to a lot of the discussion about, you know, the events that night on Oak Beach. And, and there's also another thing, which is that when we started out doing our, 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 our research, we made a decision that we weren't going to contact any of the victims' families. We we're going to not intervene in any way with the real people that, you know, you know, who've had, who've suffered through this tragedy. And, you know, so we've stayed, you know, we've just, tried to respect that. In fact, we have. The only contact we actually had with anybody that would be remotely connected with the cases, when we drove out to Oak Beach to take a walk around the community, we did speak to one resident about, you know, tidal conditions in the marsh and uh, got some commentary there. But other than that, we've just studiously avoided it. And now, with the autopsy report, like in a lot of ways, you know, I feel conflicted because it's, in some respects, it's a tremendous invasion of privacy. Uh, and I think when I discuss it, I'm going to try also to, you know, leave out a lot of the, you know, the more, you know, sensitive parts, not just from a, from a legal standpoint, just that I don't think, you know, f- family members, if they have not had access to the report, I don't think they need to hear from me the nitty gritty of, of the autopsy. It just, it's, it just doesn't strike me as, as the right thing to do. So, you know, like I say, if someone else can build on this and, you know, make a case for releasing it, uh, I'd say go for it. But what I'm just going to do here is try to summarize some points that are to be found in the document. And it's the document, it's, uh, it's, enti- it's entitled the Report of Examination uh, Name Shannon Maria Gilbert, Autopsy Performed by Hajar Sims Child. And it was published uh, on December 14th, 2011.
and how do you, how do you wish to proceed from here? Well, I know that you have a, a, a list of points that you'd like to bring up, so feel free to just go okay. through those. Yeah, let's, all right, let's, okay, let's do uh, right. All right, the, 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 one of the big debates that I've had post the Baltimore uh, podcast is the whole issue of what the actual conditions on the ground were uh, when Shannon went into the, the marsh. And it's ranged... It, you know, one, and one of the things, pieces of research that I think that I thought was particularly clever, if, if we may pat ourselves on the back in a small way, is, you know, we started to discuss something that no one ever had, which was looking at the title charts of the evening Shannon entered. And uh, to the best of our ability, when we recreated a timeline of the events of that night slash early morning, it appeared to us that Shannon would have entered the marsh at low tide. And at high tide, you know, several hours later, uh, there might have been as big a difference as of, you know, like uh, eight to 12 inches of water. And Yes, the you know that area of Oak Beach is indeed a marsh, and you know is subject to tidal influence. Uh, and although that's as I say, that's a hot that's a hot button right there. A lot of people you know don't agree with that. Uh, all right. However, point number one, uh, they were able to recover almost the complete skeleton of Shannon, uh, and they describe the remains as being found. As marshland in one area of the report, and in another area as marshland area. And more importantly, they describe the remains when they visit, you know, part of the, there's two parts of the autopsy. One is the uh, examination on the site, and then obviously there's one back in, in, the, in the laboratory. And they describe in situ that she was partially buried and covered by mud. And to me, I think if one gleaned nothing else from the autopsy report, the whole subject of whether or not it's that she, the poor woman could somehow have drowned or aspirated, you know, aspirated mud or you know, just come to a sad end uh, without human intervention, I think that speaks to it. I, if you're telling me that the that the remains are you know substantially covered by mud, it's, it speaks to me that she sank into mud. Right. I have a question. Um, when they drained the marshland, was this uh, prior to discovering the body, or was yes? Some, okay. Yes. Yes. So, and, and you uh, don't you don't know what what went on with industrial machinery as far as the the procedure of draining the marshland, do you? No, no, I don't. I, I mean, I, I I have read that there was an existing drainage system that was in ill repair and part of it was you know part of it they just fixed the existing drainage system i don't think i don't think they needed to do you know i don't think this was like sort of like a, you know a depression era you know public works effort i think they basically fixed what had been broken and allowed you know the marsh to start draining normally but the interesting thing about it is you have the police are describing some of their search efforts where they're saying that in some cases, you know, searchers sank up to their waist in mud. And I'm willing to concede the point that the mud was probably at, you know, you know the area where the marsh is, quote unquote, marshiest. And Shannon was found in a somewhat, you know, a quarter mile away, sort of up 
closer to Ocean Parkway. And I'm certainly willing to concede that that's not, you know, that's that maybe that's not an area that is as wet as the, you know, the bottom of the marsh. I, I don't, I do not pretend to understand the marsh's topography. I've never looked at a topographical map of of the marsh, so I can't speak to whether or not like it's a bowl-like, you know, formation. But I'm certain. I, well, I guess what I'm saying is that. I'm, I don't necessarily believe that where Shannon fell, that it was one of those areas where you go up to your waist in mud, but it's very clear from the report that mud, you know, she fell in mud. Right. And like you were, you use the bowl analogy, what you're kind of trying to say is that if the, the and you can look at satellite uh, images of this area online, but if it was a bowl type topographical formation, um, she would have been found on like the rim of the bowl. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, right. But, but, uh, you know, uh, as I said, you know, the, the, you know, the autopsy describes the body as being found in marshland and in a marshland area and, you know, buried and partially buried and covered by mud. So it's, uh, it's pretty clear that, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't found in norm on normal dry land. So I think, and I'm sure there'll be members of the LISC, you know, online community that will dispute it. But I think that if you learned nothing else from the autopsy, I think that that should put paid to the idea that, you know, she entered the marsh. It was like, you know, there was nice walking conditions and it wasn't hard to enter. It wasn't uh, stressful to run around and that, you know, somehow, you know, LISC caught up with her and, you know, murdered her in the marsh or, even more nefariously, that some scenario where Lisk, you know, uh, seized her in the moments before the police arrived, you know, when ambient light was starting to come into the area, grabbed her, you know, killed her or, you know, somewhere and hit her somewhere and then subsequently dumped her, you know, near the Ocean Parkway in, within the marshland. Right. Uh, or that I, she was a victim of... Um, another murderer who would have resided. I mean, it, if Lisk isn't Brewer, let's say, who would have resided in the community, and it was just happenstance that she was killed in such close proximity to where the Long Island serial killer right. victims were discovered. Right. Now, what I'm about to say might be tortured logic, uh, and. I certainly understand someone not agreeing with it, but I would say that if Shannon Gilbert was indeed murdered uh, and someone did not kill her in the marsh but killed her before she entered the marsh and uh, or right after she had entered the marsh and then somehow hit her body somewhere and then later disposed at it at that site where she was found, I would say that virtually i am virtually certain that that person was a serial killer that's not something that is you know that's not something that someone does you know just out of uh, you know anger or you know some you know that's that's not to me that has none of the hallmarks of a one off right yeah. so you know uh, they would and, have and, taken her body as far away from their their house as possible if it was just a one-off, if 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 only under panic, but you're right in that someone for someone to, to have um, put her in such close proximity to where she vanished, it points to someone being uh, uh, calm, cool, and collected, if if not careless. Right. 
but you know, right? And I, and I, and I, I serial, serial killers can be careless, uh, but I don't think Mr. Lisk is careless. Right. Uh, so, all right, mo- all right, moving on. So we've got so, okay, that's so point back back yeah. to the mud. That um, is. Um, reinforcing your opinion that i mean we all know that that the medical examiners attributed her death to accidental drowning which is also what you believe happened in 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 this case and so the accumulation of mud around the remains you think could support that hypothesis yes yeah yes you know, and I, I and, and I guess you know people can and probably will come up with alternative explanations. You know, like perhaps you know in a, in a severe hurricane or you know some kind of you know unusual circumstance where you know ocean water you know somehow managed to make it past the you know the first two lines of houses and you know completely covered that marsh area and that's where the mud came from. I, I, I'm sure people can construct alternative, you know, scenarios from it, but it, it, I, I think the common sense explanation is simply that she fell in a muddy area. Right. And alternative explanations are all fine, but this this wasn't the first murder um, the Suffolk County Coroner's Office, you know, investigated. So their ex- correct their expertise has to weigh pretty heavily. Yeah, no, I, I I come across reading the whole of the autopsy report with, uh, you know, like you know respect for the process. I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't sloppily or casually done. It was thorough, and the unfortunate fact of the matter is they didn't have a lot to work with. Uh, you know, basically, they found skeletonized remains. They recovered virtually all of it. Uh, the remains were basically within a 10-foot area, although some of the small bones were about five times further away, uh, which is evidence of, you know, animal interference with, with the remains. Uh, but I think they did a solid professional job, and uh, which leads me to point number two. And here I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the various parts of the skeleton and what they did and did not find, other than to say that they examined the remains very closely and in no way found any evidence of trauma on any of the bones or the you know, you know existing cartilage or remains. So there's nothing in this report that would suggest that she died as a result of anything violent. And that's in, including uh, manual strangulation, which is what. Well, we'll um, get to we'll get to manual strangulation because I think that's a separate hyoid bone, uh, you know, uh, discussion. But you've got no fractures anywhere on what they found. You know, obviously, other than the metal plate that you know in the jaw that was a pre-existing condition, uh, there's nothing in the cervical vertebrae, you know, indicating any kind of fracture. Uh, it's just. You know, again, they go through a thorough list of what is found, and there's no evidence at all of fracture or, or any kind of trauma. So, it's very hard to come up with scenario. You know, and, and, and let's let's say for a moment the cause of death was strangulation. Okay, so there's not trauma to the rest of the body. You know, we know that Shannon Stewart was Shannon Gilbert was in quite a state that night, and I would suggest that anybody grabbing her, she was going to put up at one hell of a fight, because we've already seen that she's managed to penetrate. You know, you know, virtually unpenetrable bramble. I mean, when 
Katja and I took a ride out to Oak Beach, and and we're walking around and looking at how to enter the marsh. I mean, like you know, this stuff, the brambles like come up to my chest, and it's my understanding they've cut a lot of it down. So you've really got to be in a a manic state to actually penetrate it. So I'm just saying that in a scenario where you want to believe she didn't make it in the marsh, but somehow someone grabbed her and strangled her before she got into the marsh. I think she would have put up one hell of a fight. And there's nothing in the remains that suggests there's any trauma. So, again, that also leads me to, you know, reinforces the belief that the poor woman ultimately, you know, entered the marsh and traveled, you know, removed her removed her pants and ran a quarter of a mile diagonally across the marsh and ultimately collapsed, exhausted, in, in, a, in a muddy area. Right. Now, about the clothes, and I don't know how much you can um, well, describe. Well, yes, I, a, a, I would prefer not to, yeah, I would prefer not to read a list of the clothing that was found with her, but I was quite surprised because I had had a notion that her clothing was found relatively close to the back of Dr. Hackett's house, and the body was a quarter mile diagonally across the marsh. And the reality is they found her clothing like either on or in the immediate vicinity of the remains. So other than things like her shoes, her uh, jeans, and I, you know, I've heard, I've read, you know, that there's, there was a jacket that's gone missing, but all of the other clothing was found and directly, you know, near the body. So I had, I had actually thought that she had ran naked across the uh, marsh and that's actually not true. So, I mean, she had things, you know, she had things on her legs, uh, some leggings and, and like, and she, she, you know, she was, she was not in that kind of state. And the one thing that I will I will say, uh, well, actually two. One is that the clothing is is described as damp and, and quite deteriorated, which again gets back to the wetness of the area. Uh, but more importantly, I think that uh, she was found uh, with with her panties, and I'm not going to describe what the panties were like, but I would just say that it would be extremely unusual, in my humble opinion, if uh, this was a sexual assault for the killer to leave her with her panties on. You know, it's not set in steel that no one would do that, but I just think that the notion of, of clothed Shannon Gilbert is at odds with, you know, notion of, you know, some kind of violent assault by a predator in Oak Beach. Like you said, without describing the clothes, is it safe to say that she was wearing more clothes than she had taken off? Uh, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Now, now, yeah, there's not, there's, yeah, that's not, that's not debatable. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, the technical language here is because we are dealing with skeletons. It's going to be a question of being on or close to, right? So you know, it, it, you can just, you, I guess, you could somehow argue that someone put the clothing on top of you know the, of, of Shannon. But some of the discussion within the autopsy report leads you to believe that she's clothed with it, uh, and. 
I think that you know also like I said it puts it puts another nail in the in an issue that this was an assault. Now there have been when you meant when you mention uh, someone putting the clothing on top of her, we're basically dealing with. There's a couple hypotheses that, that are floating around out there. The official one, which is the one you you concur with, uh, about where we have this 15 minute time frame between her vanishing and the police arriving on the scene for her to be either murdered and take and taken into the marsh or running uh, on her own volition into the marsh and drowning and then there's another hypothesis that states that her, her body was kept and not deposited in the marsh for months and months Later, in right. fact, after a television show had aired, right, or something like that, and then all of a sudden, like the next day, I think it was, or somewhere cl- close to that, they discover the body. So when you say you know clothing deposited, playing devil's advocate, there are people who follow the case who would argue that the clothing was deposited along with the remains. But we're talking about 18 months after she right. had been missing. Right. Well, uh, the the counter argument to that, I think, is that if someone intends to dump the body in that part of the marshland for whatever reason, after the discovery of the Gilgo Four or whatever whatever it is, you know, if you think about it from a forensic point of view. Uh, you don't want the clothes, you know, what, what would lead you, you know, what could possibly lead the police back to you? Uh, and that would be the clothing, which, by the way, is described as, you know, tr- it's, it's, it's in tatters and it's tremendously deteriorated. All right? Right. So it's not, it's not like we're not talking about, you know, pristine circumstances. We're talking about clothing that had really suffered from, you know, 18 plus months in, in the wild. And so the, it's not, the and the skeleton as well. Yes, exactly. Right. But but the thing about it, you can think about this. So so you have uh, Lisk or whoever are you know uh, proposed you know second serial killer is residing within Oak Beach community. I mean, it, it, the one thing that can link you back forensically to uh, the scene, of the, you know, to, to to you is the clothing. You know. You, you, when you killed her, or where you store, you know where you stored her. I mean, you, you, who knows what fibers it could possibly pick up? I mean, it, to me, if you're going to do that, you've got to, and you want to return the body there for whatever message you intend to send. I think you have to, to jump her there, jump dump her there naked. It's right. incredibly so, so. You have this, you, you kind of have this bizarre conundrum where you're arguing that Lisk or whoever this is is canny enough to actually, you know, snatch her. 15 minutes or so before the police arrive and while, you know, ambient light is starting to come onto the area, somehow quiets her and hides her somewhere and then later returns to put the body back. And, and, and someone who's able to do that, I don't see them, you know, reclothing the remains or, you know, dropping the clothing on top of the body. It, 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 it's just... Right. You know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with uh, the, that person's own. You know, you know, somewhat. To, you know, you know, they're they're smart enough to get away with that aspect of it, but then they're going to be dumb enough to leave forensic clues. Right. And do we know if the family identified um, articles of clothing uh, I don't found know. at the scene as belonging to? Because when you think about it, 
and just thinking about other solved murder cases, the article of clothing that can, would contain the most forensic matter would have been her shoes. Cases are solved every right, day um, by um, uh, by microscopic fibers uh, or paint or trace evidence or whatever that uh, have attached to a, pers- a murder victim's shoes. So I, I was curious as to whether we know that the shoes that were found at the scene were identified as belonging I, I, to her. I, I don't know. I, I I think I read somewhere that they identified her purse, but I, I could be I could I could be totally off base. If you're going to dump her clothes, I mean, you know, it, 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 going with the hypothesis that her remains and her clothing weren't deposited until 18 months later, as farcical as that might sound now, given the condition of those cl- articles of clothing. You, the killer, you would have, I, I don't would forget, have at least don't forget, replaced she's basically, she's, she's, uh, she's kind of disarticulated. I mean, it's not that, he, that there's any suggestion that she's been chopped off, but just like 18 months of Mother Nature taking, oh, you know, yeah. its toll. She, it, like, you, it's not even, you, the, you know, it, it's not even going to be easy to just bring her there. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make sense from a, a standpoint of a, of a, of serial killer behavior to um, put someone else's clothes there, for instance, um, that would contain no trace evidence or uh, leaving all of those clothes behind uh, right. at, at the scene of the crime. It just, it's not, you know, what you would typically expect. No, it's not. And the other interesting thing, at least to me, is that, you know, Dr. Tomos's hypothesis is that she removed her pants uh you know because her body temperature was you know was 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 spiking courtesy of something like yeah ingestion of ecstasy or whatever and 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 we you know we don't need drugs to be part of this narrative because we know that you know shannon unfortunately was you know untreated you know suffered from bipolar uh, disorder and she was untreated for it. Uh, and, you know, we also now know even more tragically, courtesy of her sister, who's schizophrenic, that there's, you know, an element of, you know, there's just an element of mental illness here, which could explain the removal of the pants. Uh, so, you know, her removing the pants but leaving other things on, actually, in some ways, in my humble opinion, buttresses our argument that she, you know, took off her pants because she was just getting too darn hot, but she didn't, like, completely strip down, which would be complete madness, given that she was running through rough terrain. So, obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing where I can I can see a debate on various sides of that. But, so, so you know, I'm just, okay, so let's recapitulate what we've got so far, because we've got a lot more uh, to cover. All right, found in marshland, found in mud, no evidence of trauma, no fractures. Uh, a lot of her clothing was associated with the remains. And one of those items is, you know, her, her panties, which I think also further argues against an assault. Okay. Now we move to the hyoid bone uh, controversy. Uh, according to the report, it's not fractured. Uh, it's intact. What's missing are its horns. Horns, and uh, Doctor Tomosa says this is strongly indicative of like uh, critters gnawing on it. Uh, you know, because if you were 
you know, in the, basically this, the middle of the bone would be inclined to break as well in the event of like a, of strangulation. And the fact that the horns are just completely missing as opposed to associated with the remains, you know, just suggests critter, critters gnawing at it. And there's absolutely no reference here to a hole in the middle of the hyoid bone. In fact, it's intact. So we have this, you know, Dr. Batten is describing a drill hole. I'm saying that common sense tells you that you couldn't put a drill hole through a hyoid bone, but more to the point, the uh, examiner in this report is saying it's intact. So we have a conundrum there, uh, and we, you know, I think it also further argues against assault. So that's that, unless you have any further questions on it. Well, so, okay, I'll ask one question. Um, in your Baltimore talk, Tomosa, I, I, I don't recall if it was you saying this or if it was the Tomosa conversation where he suggested like a, a worm might have eaten its way through yes. the uh, hyoid bone yeah. and to cause that hole. But, but now from reading between the lines of what you're saying now, even a hole eaten by a worm th- through the bone was, might have made uh, – yeah, the medical examiner might have commented upon that. And, and and he didn't. So the fact that there's no mention of a hole whatsoever, whether it was a drill hole or a wormhole, yeah. might lead someone to question um, the veracity of Baden's, um, you know, revelation about a well, hole being yeah, there at all. Given that there's a extent, you know, there's extensive discussion of the condition of the hyoid in the report, and it's uh, it's specifically described as intact. Uh, I mean, to me, you know, they 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 you know they say the horns of the hyoid are missing. You know, they're not they're not near. Remember, they're not. It's not like they've been fractured off and they're nearby. They're just they're just gone. So you know, uh, and the fact that it's described as intact, I I just i have a hard i have a hard time saying that that shows any signs that it's very hard to fit a strangulation scenario into uh you know into uh, a narrative it's also very very hard to you know take with a serious uh, demeanor argument that she's been tortured right because if if there was a hole in the bone you would have like I say, you would think it would have been noted, and the medical examiner would have tried to determine what was the 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 cause of it, um, right? Uh, yeah. Or well, maybe I think he, that's... Uh, would he have used the word intact if it was um... a hole? <laughs> it was a hole. Uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of grasping at straws. I think that if there was a hole, standard operating procedure would be take a cast of the hyoid bone, and and the, and the reason why you would do a cast would be to try to figure out what indeed penetrated it right. you know like uh, you know you, you, so the fact that they didn't take it there's no mention of them doing any casting uh to try you know just like if you had a bullet hole you know you would do a cast to try to figure out you know the, you know, the path of the bullet or whether or not it had you know created any kind of striations on its as an on its way in you know without a cast you're not you're not even going to be able to determine like what it is that possibly you know what you know was it completely smooth, which might indicate a mechanical device, or is it sort of slightly irregular, which would indicate like a worm? So the fact that there's no casting to me, not to mention the fact they use the word intact. I mean, I, I honestly, I think I personally, I think 
I, I, I just feel like moving on right. from the hyoid bone because, you know, it's it just, it, it's, you know, the, the horns, the missing horns are just, are explicable. And right. they're and saying it's not it's, like, um, other LISC victims, um, were tortured with drills or anything where I mean that that has never been made public has it no so so Baden's attempt if he was attempting to link um Shannon Gilbert's murder with the the other victims um there's saying that she was tortured by a drill through the hyoid bone wouldn't accomplish that yeah well i'm i mean i'm again i'm trying to i'm trying to envision a scenario where you know she is you know crazed and she's running around and there's a, a serial killer who's also equally crazed running around with a drill right uh you know but right before the police arrive and the you know, or then we have to think, okay, well, she was taken alive somewhere, even though, of course, like, you know, half of the neighborhood now is aware that someone's running around screaming, you know, somehow you managed to abduct her, keep her silent and, you know, you know, take her somewhere and, or in the basement of your house, you're, you're torching her with a, an extremely small drill, you know, it's like, you know, you, you know, even, even, uh, even a dentist drill would be too thick for a hyoid bone. I mean, I, I, I it's very. It's a really implausible scenario. Right. Okay. Then let's uh, move on. Okay. Neck cartilage. All right. Uh, the neck cartilage was not present, and the neck cartilage it can be strongly argued. It also refers to the larynx. Uh, so. Another part of you know, Biden's report that the larynx is missing, well, it can be, I, th- I think it's, it can be successfully argued that the uh, autopsy report is making note of that. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and I had a separate discussion about this with Dr. Mosa, who points out that larynxes contain keratin and animals like keratin. So it's not, you know, you, while, you might think, well, larynx has no nutritional value. The actually, that's actually not technically true. So, the scenario where animals, you know, and and and, and I, listen, I feel for the family, and like I don't feel particularly great about discussing, you know, animals gnawing at somebody's throat while they're, you know, they're dead in a marsh. Uh, but I think that. And I can see how that would be hurtful to a family member to hear that, but I also think it's hurtful to family members to think that someone is a victim of, you know, a, of a serial killer that the police are just too lazy to, to catch. I mean, and to me, that I think that would that would hurt more. I think I'd personally rather know that a loved one died through a tragic accident than, you know, at the hands of a fiend. Right, and it's also, I mean, uh, what we're kind of doing here is establishing the reasons why they came to the ruling of of accidental drowning as opposed to she being manually strangled, right? So, right. so, so, you know, in in that respect, taking taking a step by step through the medical examiner's report. Um, it paints a picture of of why they reached the conclusion that they did. Yes, uh, and uh, let's let's you know if there's no further questions on that, let's let's move on because uh, there's a couple more points. Uh, and uh, let's discuss 
the tox the tox screens uh and I don't, I'm not going to read the list of all the things they tested for, uh, but they certainly did thorough testing. Which so so th- the notion that they only tested her remains for cocaine that's that's just outright false. I mean, there's no way, shape, or form you can read this report and hold to that theory. I mean, they did they did two things. So they did something called the emit screen, which uh, tests for about eleven substances, uh, one of which is THC, uh, so along with cocaine. So they, they did test. Uh, and what becomes clear from the report, without getting into details, is that it really had nothing to work with. Uh, standard procedure in doing a toxicology screen, you, I can tell you what a forensic examiner wants. They want the stomach they want urine. They want things like the brain. They want the heart. They want the liver. They want blood. And when I was discussing this with Dr. Tomosi, he was saying that even having a, the larvae that are feeding off a body, you know, you, you can do a successful tox screen on the larvae, uh, but they don't have that here. And in, in fact, they actually mention uh, at one point, you know, that they don't have larvae. Uh, so uh, they they had precious little in the way of tissue samples to work with as well as like you know the things from the brain cavity so they 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 ran they ran a screen on that and they also did something called the qualitative uh, drug uh, test which involves efforts to extract things from the tissue samples and then subject them to gas chromatography and see whether or not anywhere on the resulting chart whether or not anything spikes that shouldn't shouldn't be there uh so and that's also something that sort of like is done when you don't have a lot of material to work with and i'll just close that section out by saying that to a forensic examiner, hair is like your last resort for a tox screen. And I, I know that there's like, you know, people say, oh, they've tested Egyptian mummies and successfully found there's arsenic in their hair. Well, yes, in a desiccated scenario, in a desert, in a tightly sealed tomb, yes. But uh, you're, you're talking about hair that has been subjected to the elements, you know, all four seasons, you know, 18 plus months and, and wet. Uh the chance of actually doing a successful tox screen from the hair is is virtually nil, and it's interesting. Like Tomosa, you know, who's, produced, who's participated in four thousand cases, said he's actually never seen a situation where they've actually tried a real tox screen from hair. So it's basically it's a hail mary, and they didn't come up with anything. But if I would leave you with one conclusion from it all, it's that. Uh, they didn't just test for cocaine. So that, that which has been publicly stated, uh, that's, that is just simply false. And based on what they had to work with, I would say coming up with uh, negative results really doesn't tell us anything. So that's pretty much uh, a tour through the autopsy, trying to be as oblique about it as they can be. I'll leave one thing uh, you know, for the pundits, which is that it took me a couple of days after reading this thing to realize that, holy God, they don't actually mention whether or not she's found face up or face down. There's no reference to it. So, uh, you know, clearly 
you know, we've all taken it as a truism that she was found face up at, you know, in the Oak Beach Marsh. Whoever, wherever that comes from, it might be coming from within law enforcement or whatever, but I can tell you it's not coming from the forensic examination report. So that is a little tour through the autopsy results. And, you know, hopefully uh, we've managed to skirt issues of, you know, revealing too much. Right. Uh, and about um, face up, face down, I mean, if you, if you think about what, you, what you've said about how the body was discovered, um, some, um, you know, scattered by animals across what was it of? 40 square foot. Yeah, it, um, well, that's what their number specifically mentioned. But yes, uh, you know, uh, most of it's within uh, a 10 foot radius, and there's some uh, smaller bones that are found about five times further away, which would, you know, indicate, you know, animal activity. Right. And then the draining of the marsh, we don't know what that entailed, but if it entailed the movement of water, well, then water moves things. Right. So, um, you know, how the skull was was recovered uh, it, it's really uh you know uh, a mo- right like it, right, can't, it the- can't be a definitive uh argument as to whether she drowned or not yeah i mean i can paint the scenario where uh you've got the that most of the remains are uh are are face down so to speak except the skull is pointing you know face up i mean i, I don't want to get morbid uh but yeah, I, I right. I mean, and, and so yes, you you, just, you would describe that as face up, but is it really? I you know I don't know. I mean, I I don't assign any real importance to whether or not the poor woman was face up or face down because I think it's quite possible to drown in you know very small amounts of water. I think it's also possible to fall into a small amount of water and mud and aspirate it. And as you're choking, like you know, you you you, you flip, you're, you're turning over, and but you're still, you know, you're still going to choke. So I don't think it's necessary. I, I don't, I don't, I don't personally assign a whole lot of importance to it. But I just wanted to point out that, you know, about three days after I read this, I literally woke up in the middle of the night and said, "Holy God, they don't mention it." Right. So I don't know where I don't know where in the law enforcement you know narrative that. The description of her is being found face up, entered. Right. Um, so that's so that's that's the report. And I hope it sheds some light on uh, you know on, on on the case. You know, as I've said, I think that one of the problems uh, that we're having with discussion of 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 the, of the Long Island serial killer murders is that. People keep trying to fit Shannon Gilbert into the scenario, into the scenario, and I think that it does. I think it does the case a disservice because I think that it alters what should be your proper view of Lisk's mo. Uh, Lisk doesn't, you know, he doesn't identify himself, and he sure doesn't let these women have their own driver, and they certainly don't call their driver or you know for you know for example like melissa like her her safety mechanism involved texting blaze uh i think uh if i'm not mistaken megan would have vibe pick her up from a call right uh maureen she 
didn't like to do out calls. She was highly suspicious of it. I mean, it's been said that she wouldn't even go out to Brooklyn or Queens. Uh, and she always rented the hotel room for the Johns to come to her. She didn't visit the Johns. So, you know, and she also would always text somebody to say that she was okay. So that, you know, that didn't happen. And with Amber, well, there's been a lot of online discussion of whether or not she had a cell phone. Uh, but I'd say that right there is that she didn't normally do out calls, right? I mean, she, she worked she worked out of uh, Dave's home, and he was there to protect her if things got rocky. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate as to how reliable some of this narrative is, but, you know, it's been said that, you know, uh, she... You know, declined to take a she declined to take a cell phone, and also, if you remember, Lisk didn't pick her up in front of the home. Right, she walked down the block, and she walked down the block alone. So we have a scenario where the Gilgo Four Lisk is going through. You know, it's jumping through hoops in some ways to get all these women to ignore their normal defense mechanism. None of this happened with Shannon Gilbert. So, if you insist on Shannon being part of the narrative, I think you're you're failing to ask the the real questions. Is like, how did all these women get you know connived into deviating from their normal procedures? That I think is. I don't think that online. You know armchair detectives like ourselves, I don't think we're going to solve the case, but I think that if if a tenth of the effort has been put onto the analysis of the incidents at Oak Beach were applied to the, uh, you know, what what happened to these other four, I think we'd be collectively further along in the narrative. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, there's victimology and there's suspectology, right? So, um, with Lisk, you have to examine the the suspectology, how yeah, and how how it matches the victimology. And in all the cases, as you've pointed out, there's some way that he gets these women to let their guard down. Um, right, and, and if we can, if we can discuss that for a, a few more minutes, uh, sure. I think you know one of the online rebuttals to you know the uh, Baltimore talk is well, he offered them a lot of money and that's why they that's why they deviated from their procedures and i personally find it very hard to believe that you know experienced online escorts you know were, would would change their their methods of operation simply because someone was offering a lot of money uh, because you just Yes, each one. I mean, you can argue that each one of them, you know, was particularly desperate at that particular point in time. I mean, Maureen, if I remember correctly, was facing eviction, uh, and Amber, obviously, you know, was you know, was an industrial strength junkie at the time. And I still find it very hard to believe that simply someone calling up and saying, I'll pay you a lot of money, but I don't want you to tell anybody where you're going. I want you to, you know, I want you to be secretive about where you're going. I don't want Blaze to drive you. I don't want you, I don't want you calling or texting your boyfriend after you've arrived here. Uh, so I, 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 I just really am incredulous at notions that simply offering money would, wouldn't, you know, 
to from a stranger would you know make one of these women you say okay yeah I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I'm I'm good with that you know right I, it, we and I not that I know of you know the um, back pages um, you know call girl uh, community at all um, but you know, thirty years ago it might have worked and it did work that uh, Gary Ridgeway. Um, was successful in uh, murdering most of his victims by offering them a lot of money simply because he knew he was going to get the money back. Right. Uh, um, but what has gone on over the last 30 years and what what everybody knows about the M.O. of some of the most successful serial murderers of prostitutes in this country, you would think that there would be in in today's day and age a level of awareness right well i think you know what i'm what i'm about to say is certainly nothing profound but uh you know uh, the the reason why all these women you know who moved away from systems where they had a pimp is that once you move online and you remove the pimp from the equation you're making a lot more money you might not necessarily charging more, but you're going to be keeping it. You know, yes, you have to pay your driver. Yes, but uh, there's not, you know, there's not as much of a cut of the take as there was with an escort service. Uh, you know, so so all all these women knew that there was nobody vetting these people. So. I don't think just – there's several things that I just find hard to believe. I don't believe the guy – if the guy called up and said, hey, I'm a cop. You're safe with me. I don't think that would that would fly. I don't think, okay, yeah, I'll pay you I'll pay you $1,500. And, and I think that $1,500 was a lot of money to these women. I mean, I know that there's mention made that, you know, they will, will, you know sometimes they would make $1,000 a night or whatever. But I think at this point of their careers, I'm not sure that they were bringing in that kind of money. Uh, so, and I, I just we we don't know something. What we need to know is how Lisk got inside these people's defense mechanisms, and I think that it, I think that one wastes a lot of time trying to uh, ponder the events at Oak Beach that night. I don't th- I don't think it advances the it advances the, the the case, so to speak. Obviously, more than a few people disagree with that. Right. And, um, and you know, the serial killer is probably sitting back um, thinking his lucky stars that uh, the focus has switched from. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, yes. to what, what I think happened that to Shannon, I think that, uh, you know, Shannon's contribution obviously is that she enabled the discovery of the Gilgo four. And I think that. Whenever whoever Lisk is, or or you know, in our case, we think it's two people working in tandem. Uh, I think that the day they realized, that, like somebody went, an escort went missing right next to their cemetery, so to speak. I think that they thought, "Why the hell did this happen?" And I think that they initially cursed their luck, but I think now they're actually quite happy about it because most of the you know, I think most of the analytic work has gone towards, uh, you know, the Shannon Gilbert uh, 
uh, case. I, mean, I could be very wrong. I mean, uh, for example, online community is sort of enraged that you know law enforcement doesn't comment a lot about Shannon or hasn't given them a lot of information. I think it's just a question is that they've concluded from everything they've seen that she's not a victim, and there's no you know there's no need to talk about it. Other than you know them informing you know the, the, the family members of their of their conclusions, I think silence on the Shannon Gilbert case doesn't mean uh, FBI or uh, you know Suffolk police incompetence. I think it just means that they feel they've that that it's not it's a non-issue. Right now, you've uh, mentioned the cell phones. Um, uh, there's online discussion about s- cell phones, and you touched on that. And your your Baltimore talk received some interest from uh, web sleuths, uh, in particular, um, and other places online, uh, Casebook.org, as well, um, about um, about your Baltimore talk. And not all of it's been positive. And so I'll ask you about another one of the criticisms you received, and that is. In your talk, you made no mention of the drifter who yeah. the New York Post reported uh, was staying with Joseph Brewer at the right. time, um, who is Shannon Gilbert's client. Uh, and I'd like you to get yeah, your uh, thoughts on, well, on well, that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something, which uh, in light of you know the uh, feedback that uh, the, the talk in, has engendered, you, believe it or not, the initial go around or the presentation that we, we prepared it actually didn't it didn't uh, deal with uh, uh, Shannon Gilbert at all we actually just ignored it uh, which uh, which uh, and I now realize that you know that would that, that would have been a hideous mistake oh, yeah. it could have been a lot worse is, is what yeah, you yeah. no absolutely well because you know we ultimately concluded after like a couple of months that she wasn't a victim and that therefore we were just going to say you know it's unfortunate but you know you know and, and she's received a lot of attention and publicity but we're going to talk about the you know Gilgo four. We want to talk about Jane Doe three. We want to talk about Baby Doe, and some of the other uh, you know uh, vic- potential victims, and not spend time on Shannon Gilbert. And then we started to realize that no, actually the talk's going to have to be about Shannon Gilbert because if you know if nothing else, we want to try to remove her from the canonical list, so to speak. So uh, we initially weren't even going to talk about Shannon Gilbert. So uh, I can only imagine the reaction that that would have engendered. Uh, So with respect to the drifter and all that, I guess because I believe that none of the forensic evidence, and I don't mean this because you know we've now been privileged to look at the autopsy report. I don't think I don't think it was anything that ever like you know rang an alarm bell in our heads that Shannon was a victim. So uh, I'm not trying to pull a fast one and say I don't care about the drifter, uh, but it's just that since I I, I honestly, actually, I don't really care who he is. I mean, I don't, I don't, I've read the Oak Beach, uh, you know, drifter book and uh I think that you know maybe you know, paints Brewer as possibly not such a nice guy, maybe having a predilection for rough sex. Uh, that's assuming that the book is actually legit, and I have no idea. You know, I've got no. You know, I, I don't even know how to comment on it. Right? I mean, I don't know who W is. No one's sure who W is. No one knows who the Drifter is. Was a Drifter also with a, a woman? 
which was there was one report. I mean, I initially thought like maybe there wasn't even a drifter, but there's 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 one article that says the police say he's not a person of interest. So assuming the guy exists, I'm I'm willing to go with the. You know, I'm not somebody that just blanketly takes the police, you know, word as gospel. But when they say someone's not a person of interest in a case that's as high profile as this, I, I believe they vetted the person. So, you know, the, the, it would it be nice to know who he was or if he actually was there that night or, you know, he, he just doesn't seem, you know, he doesn't seem to enter the narrative. Brewer never mentions him. Pack never mentions him. Uh you know, it's just basically all based on one newspaper article mentioning him, and then the other newspaper articles cite the you know the reference to the drifter. So, I, yeah, it's like you know, it's a mystery, but to me, it's not in, it's not important to like my considerations of the case, right. which basically is a way of ducking the question. Okay, but and we see this a lot in a lot of other cases. It is kind of um, someone inserting themselves into the investigation in a way that, in a way, it has a lot with the online community. Anyway, it's, it's in your opinion kind of derailed it. Do you, would you say? Yes, yeah, I, th- I think so. Uh, I'm sure that the, the you know a lot of people disagree with that, uh, but. You know, Brewer was, you know, it was reportedly a party person. And to me, a party is not like, you know, two people, right? It it connotates more. Uh, So, you know, the idea that on other evenings there were more men and more women and, you know, you know, people there. I mean, yeah, I believe it. I mean, I, I, I don't have a problem believing that there was somebody else staying with Brewer at that time. But. You know the specifics as to who it is. I don't really, you know, I'm not, I'm not that, uh, I'm not that, you know, interested in. Uh, you know, I'm more interested in, you know, to the extent, you know, uh, you know, looking at like things like, you know, Hackett apparently calling, you know, Suffolk County Police to send up a helicopter to look, o- you know, look over the marsh. Uh, you know that that's received a lot of pushback, but you know the the uh, you know the the original source for the comment actually comes from Alex Diaz himself, who told Colker that uh, you know that yes Hackett did call Suffolk County and yes there was a helicopter. I would argue that that's not the act of a you know, that's not the act of a guilty man. Right. Um, I think that's an act of somebody who's like tries to be helpful, and I think he's had hell to pay as a result. I mean, I think that you know Dr. Hackett's relationship with the truth is at times challenged, uh, and I can't explain some of his actions, but uh, they don't point to me as connecting her to Shannon Gilbert and uh, yeah I think I think a lot of the discussion of all this the notion that there's some there was some sort of uh, you know conspiracy of mongers living at Oak Beach I mean you know if you go out to Oak Beach it's a relatively small community I mean it's uh, it's not the Hamptons all right so this notion that like you know there's a lot of rich people there trying to protect secrets that's not the case the the the, the house some of the houses are really quite nice some of them are just, you know just relatively normal beach houses but one of the things that i don't think a lot of people realize is that 
the people that own their homes on Oak Beach don't own the actual land as opposed to, like, say, other communities like the Hamptons. So it puts a natural limit on the value of the house because you live in danger that the town of Islip uh, t- sorry, town of Oyster Bay can, uh, you know, basically yank your residency permit. So homes that could be worth millions of dollars elsewhere don't, tr- you know, they don't sell in Oak Beach for that kind of money. So you you don't, yeah. I mean, you have a relatively collection, relatively normal collection of people, and yeah, I mean, I I, I disagree with Kolker on his, uh, you know, uh, categorization of the Oak Beach people as people that are there to, you know, get away. I mean, yeah, it, it's somewhat it's definitely isolated in the off season, but you know you can drive to you know what I would call civilization within about you know forty five minutes. So you know they're not hermits, and I, they're not rich people trying to protect things. I just think that a very unfortunate event happened in their midst, and uh, there's obviously political divisions within the community, and people have access to grind against neighbors and people living there. And I think that they've taken advantage of that and stirred a lot of of the online narrative. And right. in, in your um your Facebook group, um, you you've posted uh, news articles about um, remains being discovered in other parts of Suffolk County. Right. Um, using your crystal ball, um, do you believe that once Lisks, as you call it, the cemetery was discovered? Um, after Shannon Gilbert went missing, that he is still active and has moved on to uh, another dumping ground. Well, well, let me say one thing about the cemetery notion. Uh, I call it that, and Dr. Tomosa calls it that, courtesy of the orderly spacing of the graves, you know, somewhat ritualistically, you know, in other words, like, just wasn't like, you know, tossing the the remains at random into the into the brush. Uh, so th- that's the origin of the cemetery notion. Uh, uh, I think that uh, there w- there was a seasonal element to the Lisk crimes, and so I think that you know Lisk winters elsewhere, and I think that there's so much heat in the area that I don't I, I doubt he's active on Long Island. You know, it was interesting, you know, when we pulled up into the Oak Beach, in the parking lot, uh, to, to go walk through the community and try to get a sense for ourselves of what, what you know, what it looked like, uh, you know, when we returned, you know, there were, there were two police cars. Uh, you know, with their with their lights uh, flickering. Uh, so simply the act of parking in the parking lot, you know, drew you know drew law. You know, you know, I, I, I they obviously checked my plates. You know, uh, so I think that there's so much heat even today around the area that I just don't see Lisk as uh, doing you know doing anything currently in the neighborhood. And by the neighborhood, I, I mean Long Island. I don't I don't think he's moved elsewhere within Long Island. I think that he's I, I think he's either gone dormant or he's you know working you know trying to fill fulfill his mission you know in some other area in the Northeast. Uh, and I think it's perfectly possible that we'll find more bodies, but I don't think we're going to find uh, remains that you know have, you know things from like the last five years or so. I think that you, it's perfectly it's perfectly possible we'll find older remains. Okay. Now let's turn to the um, discussion that you had with Charles Tomosa. Yeah. Um, after 
the Baltimore um, talk um, that was back in April, um, you met with him again, and we're going to have it as a little bonus recording tagged on to the end of this show. Um, a fair warning: you guys met at uh, a restaurant. Yeah, you can you can call it scenes from an Italian restaurant. You know, with uh, props to Billy Joel. Yeah, uh, right. I, I had to be down in Baltimore area for a baseball tournament, and uh, so uh, I had an evening free. So we met with. Uh, Dr. Tomos and uh, you know the one thing I sort of wanted to circle back on is something that there's been a lot of pushback on online and that's the idea that uh, if someone is saying they are out to get me that there has to be some basis in that, like that people don't just, you know, say these kind of things that, that, you know, in other words, like Shannon, there's no question that Shannon Gilbert was in fear of her life that evening. I don't have any doubt about that. But the question is, is whether it's reality based or not. And, uh, you know, we to mostly discuss a bit about that kind of issue. And also I, I wanted to, you know, hone in more on the whole issue of like you know having your you know you you know ecstasy and its and its and its cousins. Uh, you know what it does to your core body temperature and whether you know to what extent he was familiar with situations where you know people had stripped off all their clothing. And it turns out it's not that it's not, not that uncommon. And that's one of the things we discuss. And also, uh, you know, he has interest in the sort of thing that. Is my near and dear to my heart, which is the in Ripperology, which is the Maybrick Diary, and he's that's an, uh, Maybrick is an area of interest for him. So, some of the conversation is also dealing with Maybrick, and uh, unfortunately, I had to turn the recording off when things got really good because I'd asked them what was the worst thing he'd ever seen, and uh, well, unfortunately, he told me. So now I have to live with it, uh, but it's not on the tape. Uh, and, and frankly, you should thank your lucky stars. It's not because uh, actually there are some things that you're better off not hearing. Uh, but uh, you know, it gave, it gave it gave a lot of insight into you know. Dr. Tomos has worked on four thousand cases, and he's now a professor at the University of Baltimore in forensics. Uh, but he'd done a lot of work in forensics in with the Philadelphia Police Department, and. Honestly, you really get a sense from him of a guy that, like, basically, you see, yeah, he worked on 4,000 cases, and I think if he worked on 4,001, he just would have broken down because it's just the sheer, the sheer weight of the things that he saw in the course of his career. And you can check his CV online, I and mean, it's pretty distinguished. I mean, he just saw a lot of things that, you know, really, nobody really should, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of I, who who who's the uh, is it Ezra Pound that said after such knowledge what forgiveness or it might be T S Eliot, but I, I would cite them like after the things that Tomosa has seen after such knowledge what forgiveness and uh, and, and I'm I'm really we're privileged to get his commentary on you know the, the Long Island serial killer case and he was extraordinarily helpful in walking me through you know the nitty gritty of the autopsy report. So uh, kudos to him, and you know I think he's somebody that is you know deserving of a of a ripper cast on his own sometime. Yeah, I'm going to try to get him on 
um, eventually here. Um, like you had said, he's private about a lot of the cases he wants to discuss, but um, we'll see what he can do. He, he also, I mean, one of the things that interests me almost more so than um, murder investigations is his role as a document examiner. Yes. And, um, and so those types of crimes, the, the, uh, the salmon letter, salamander, yeah. the salamander letter, yeah, from the Mormon Church, and um, and also I'd like to get his take on some uh, a few of the uh, the Ripper letters, Zodiac, and those types of things to see what what his opinions might be on um, right. on some of those. Well, one of the things he mentioned to me uh, was that he would like to do something uh, where he takes a look at the Ripper crimes in terms of what modern day forensics, like how you would attack the case, like from like in 2016 versus 1888. And uh, so that's an area of interest to him. And I think, uh, you know, yeah, I think it'd be, I think that'd be a great talk. He, he's, uh, he's, uh, he, he tells good stories. I'll tell you. I mean, unfortunately they'll make you, you know, stay up late at night is the downside of it. But uh, yeah, he's he's a, he's been a tremendous resource, and uh, I can't thank him enough for it. And I also can't thank enough uh, to the other members of Team Syphilis. Uh, you know, one of the awkward things is like I always wind up in talks or things like this saying like I or you know because I because you know if you keep saying we, it makes it sound like you're using the royal we. But I'm just one of a team of seven you know researchers, and we come together you know every couple of years and tackle, you know, a, a, a topic. And, you know, the first one was the uh, look at the actual laboratory analysis of the Maybrick diary and what was what had been really done and what you could really legitimately glean from it. And then, uh, you know, we we did, a, you know, our talk on syphilis, uh, you know, for which well, then we sort of jokingly came up, you know, started calling ourselves Team Syphilis, and the problem is it's stuck. Uh, but, you know, I think we've, I think we've managed to actually give some, you know, unique insights into, you know, living conditions uh, for the, for Jack's victims, and I think we might have uh, helped shed some light on what kind of person Jack the Ripper might have been, and obviously uh, I don't need to tell you, there's a good, like, at least four suspects in the Ripper case that, you know, we have good reason to believe suffered from syphilis. So it's, it's germane to the case. And then, uh, you know, obviously we did LISC and I think that we, you know, when we, when we finished it, I think we collectively took a vow that we'd never again work on a live case. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, it's it was very interesting working with all everybody over eight months because you, know, you just you you know in, in ripperology all our suspects are dead, all our victims are dead, the children of the victims are dead. Uh, you know, the worst you can do is possibly upset someone who might be a relative of someone. And here, at Lisk, you know, you're actually there's actual fam. You know, in other words, like this Facebook pages where you can actually interact with. The, you know, Lisk's victims, and these are pe- real people in real pain, and uh, I, I just felt, you know, a lot, you know, it was, it was very sobering, is all, uh, all I can say. I, 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 I doubt I would ever. I don't think we would ever work on a live case again. But having said that. There's obviously been pushback on a lot of things we had to say, and. Uh, 
you know, I, I like to address it. So in other words, like I'm still, you know, we're not, we're, unfortunately, Mr. Lisk is not done with us and we are not done with him. And, uh, you know, I'm, there's, there's a lot of other, one of the things that interests me is like, you know, uh, there are things we said about what we thought Lisk was. Uh, or how he operates. And actually, that didn't bring out... That actually hasn't had a lot of pushback. And on the other hand, like things like, you know, Hackett sending up a helicopter has drawn a lot of ack-ack fire. So some of the things that I would have thought would have been controversial, you know, actually sort of like haven't been... You know, we haven't received any pushback on it. Right. You know, the idea that Lisk works with a woman who may or may not have been a sex worker, you know, like people just say, yeah, that's interesting. Whereas I would have thought that that would have drawn like a lot of, what the F are you talking about? Uh, uh, you know, or, or comments like, uh, well, baby doe, you know, I, obviously we, we don't know and we'll probably never know if she's part of the case, but, you know, was baby doe and Jane Doe three, like did, did Lisk say, you know, bring your child, my wife will look after her. You know, like, is there a is there a sign of a a woman, uh, you know, to be found in in this case? Did a woman help overcome any reticence on behalf of Amber, Maureen, Melissa, and Megan to uh, do things they didn't normally do? And I and I, I suspect that's the case. So I think I, I you know, unless you get further questions, you know, we've been at it for like an hour and a right. half, and and uh, and we have Tomosa, which is another twenty plus minutes. Right. So you no, know, I just like to say that we all hope he gets caught, and one day we'll find out, you know, whether whether your ideas about who he is and about his victims will all come to light, and that's everyone's ultimate goal. Yeah, um, is to finally see um, justice justice served most definitely. So no, I, yeah, I'm going to remind our listeners that the t- about 20 minute recording of Robert speaking to Charles Tomosa in the restaurant will follow the uh, outro music on the podcast. And um, who, if uh, you, if anyone has any questions or comments, Robert, where's where's the best places to find you at? Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm on Web Sleuths uh, under you know I, I you know I've always used my real name from the very beginning in Ripperology, uh, and I saw no reason to change. So I can be found on Web Sleuths uh, as Robert Anderson. I can be found on Facebook uh, in a group. Uh, about Long Island serial killer, uh, it's a closed group. Uh, I ask that by and large that people want to join that they use their real names. Uh, you know, trying to uh, it's it's not an absolute requirement, but uh, it's preferred. And we've got about ninety people there now, and the sub you know discussions are civilized. I do not make any pretense that somehow we're making major advances in the case there, but it's a it's polite, reasoned discussion. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, you can get. Touch with me via Rippercast. You know, there's a you know there's a online. There's actually a, there's a discussion thread on JTR forums for Lisk, where I'm a moderator. And there's uh, I, I I I believe there's one on Casebook. I think I read it a little, you know years ago uh, that there's a section there. So you can question me on Casebook. You can get at me on JTR forums. You can get me on Facebook. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not hard to, I'm not, not hard to find. Right. 
And uh, we'll be having you back on to uh, devote the entire episode to Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very I'm eager. I'd be very eager to discuss uh, the book. They all love, you know, they, they all love Jack. Uh, you, know, I, you know, which by the way, I've not read yet. Yeah, uh, that means we all have to read it. <laughs> I know, I know. They, they, well, well, you know, needless to say, in Ripperology, it's not necessary to read a book to critique it. Uh, but I think, I think, I don't think we'll go down that road. But yeah, I'd love to. Uh, you know, especially with uh, members of the team like Livia, who you know I do believe is like you know the top expert on the real life Maybricks. And she's actually, she's always cast a questioning eye towards Michael Maybrick. So uh, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but, you know, I don't think that she's necessarily going to say this book is just, you know, a bunch of hokum. Well, we hope to get all of you on for a Maybrick show sometime in the future. And right. Well, what, well I, I promise you this. When I hang up here, I'm going to pull out my copy of They All Love Jack, and uh, I'm going to start oh, poking through it. What a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, th- I, can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't thank you enough. <laughs> All right. Well, Robert, uh, I want to thank you for being on the Rippercast. Yeah, and, thanks. Um, and talking about the autopsy report of Shannon Gilbert. And uh, maybe one day it'll physically come to light, so everybody will have a chance to read it um, themselves and make their own, you know, conclusions about its contents. So, and so, uh, again, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for the opportunity. You do great work. Well, thank you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. people have actually found a body and moved it because they didn't want somebody to find a body on their property. So, and when you say your pro- their property, do you mean like well, a, regu- a, a regular piece of property or do you mean like a killer's territory? Yeah, if, um, if for example, um, I have a construction site and there's a body on it. I mean, why in God's name would I want to have a body there? I could just move it maybe a hundred feet and put it on somebody else. So you don't know what you're going to find. Uh, this is done all the time with archaeological remains. Nobody wants to have their site stuck for six months. Well, a homicide investigation could take two, three weeks just to grid it out, pick up the body, you know, look over the area for any you know evidence. 
and his bodies are go to um, skeletalization, well, the little critters start moving pieces around too. So, which is another point I think people have a hard time understanding that uh, the whole issue of uh, uh, Shannon Gilbert being found face up, therefore could not have drowned, could not have this, could not have where, as you pointed out, that it doesn't mean that she died face up. Critters move people, tides move people. Yeah, there's... That's not a good idea, and particularly for a guy who is basically dismembering bodies and sticking them all over the place. Why would he do one body like that and not the other? People stick with what they know and what's successful. And and he and he has been successful with that. Yeah, I mean, this way, this way. The disposal of Shannon Gilbert was clearly not successful if indeed Lisk was in the Oak Beach community because it brought a massive amount of heat upon, upon him. But I, I think the, the thing that I get time and time again is the point where the, you know, the, the, the poor woman is you know, heard on the 9-11 tape, no, sorry, 9 tape saying that you know, she's in fear of her life, they're going to kill me. And people just say, no one says that, that you know, there's, there's a reason why you say that. You don't just idly say it. And it means something. If her brain was scrambled from, say, uh, uh, ecstasy, it would describe the body temperature going up for being incredibly high. People become full-blown psychotic when they overdose on it. It makes sense that she did that because they were going to party and to get in the party mood since obviously she didn't seem to be in the mood. Right. It's an easier chance to get some of the, quote, bath salts, end quote, or, you know, MDMA or whatever, and take some of it. And it's not uncommon for people to overdose. Very common. I, I don't have trouble. I don't have trouble believing that. I don't have a problem believing that. It really, it, it, it's it's her comments are though are delusional. But as I say, on the internet, we're, we're on an infinite loop where her comments point to a real threat, despite the fact that her driver was there, despite the fact that. Dr. Hackett had virtually no time in which to intervene in the case. And Brewer, if indeed he was Lisk, Brewer being the John that hired her, it's totally out of the what what what, what little we know about Lisk's MO. This, it, to me, it, it just seems like it's different than the other cases. How can you prove it? The only way you're going to prove it is to find the killer and 
assume that he's going to tell you the truth if you ask him questions. So you're going to you're going to assume if that's the right word for it. The simplest explanation: Occam's razor. If you list the characteristics on one side and the non-characteristics on another, you're not going to find too many. And as you say, the uh, poor body temperature rising would be would explain the removal of clothing approximately a quarter mile away from where the body was found. The body temperature is climbing. It's probably 105, 106 degrees. People go out of their minds at that temperature. Fever always produces hallucinations, weird speaking. Um, well, who, who's to say it wasn't paranormal? I think if you do go through something like uh, PubMed, go through literature, you might find something in the relationship between fever and uh, strange statements. It's got to be documented somewhere. So you also have to believe that this allowed her to have like a 20-minute 911 call line open while he's doing whatever. But having said that, it is definitely the number one objection to the talk and to the thesis that her belief that she was in, the belief that she was going to be murdered means something. That just like it, they, no one murdered and killed are two different things. And the question is, what is she really thinking? Is she thinking I'm going to die, or is she thinking that somebody, some human entity, is going to kill her? And that, that's another question. I, I I would think from that nine or It's very interesting. She actually doesn't say who's trying to kill her. It's they. Yeah, and we know it's, we're pretty sure, I think, from the, the evidence of the game, that, that um, it's one killer. So why is she speaking, it's not he's going to kill me, it's they're going to kill me. So... It's, you know, they could be, you know, angels or demons or, you know, pink elephants. Well, you know, it's, we don't know. But Do you have much experience with, like, people taking things, you know, the methamphetamine class and then just ripping their clothes off? Personally, uh, the only ones I've seen do that were PCP. And my, my time, there wasn't much in the way of, of ecstasy. And it's a class of that compound. So um, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I know people have died from bath salts, these compounds. And it's because their core temperature went up. So, you know, we don't know what, as I mentioned to you before, you know, you know, go have a talk with that guy and what did they buy? 
and just immunize the guy. Yeah. Right, just yeah. tell him, look, we're, we're interested in how she died. Not, you, we'll, we'll immunize you against, you know, you can get a lawyer to do that. And tell him, you know, we're not going to, you know. Because theoretically, if you gave her something, she could be tried for, you know, homicide. There's no reason why they couldn't. Um, and most of these drugs are uh, really not terribly pure. And, uh, no. There's some good stuff coming out of China where they synthesize them, but I think there's, you know, 5% of an unknown compound. God knows what it does. I mean, there's no human trials on any of this stuff. No, it appears not. Uh, do you know anything about synthetic marijuana? And uh, that's it. That's bath salts. Uh, okay, oh, they're one of the same. Sorry, I'm not up on my street. It's happy birthday yeah. to you. Appropriate, yeah. Nothing says happy birthday like a long like out serial killer. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, I think. Uh, I think basically. A, a drug overdose is a simpler explanation for the behavior of somebody who actually killed her. I can't imagine somebody who is as methodical and, and well thought out as uh, a list killer, uh, serial killer. Uh, I, I just can't imagine that, that, that he would uh, screw this one up in the head. Once she went crazy, and she obviously had drugs. And I'd really be interested to see if they looked in things like her marrow and things like that to do the tox screen. Well, there's just a hint of them. Uh, the medical examiner in Suffolk County has told uh, Shannon Gilbert's mom that they cracked open a femur. And didn't find any, you know, anything. I, it's quite possible. I mean, after 18 months in those conditions, isn't it that the bone marrow basically evaporated or whatever? Well, it doesn't bone evaporate. Marrow, but well, I mean, it could diffuse out. Okay, which is possible. Um, but if the dose were high enough, we take that one. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a manly portion. That will go. That will be all be gone by the time we're. That's about to do a disappearance. Yes, sir. Okay, I'll take that. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else you need? We're good. Good for now. So far, so good. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Thank you. So. Next LISC-related question would be uh, from our viewers about uh, <laughs> tattoos and tattoo mutilation. Do you have any experience with it? Do you think it means anything other than uh, hindrance to identification? I would say that that's probably the reason. Uh, the guy is well thought out. and he thinks things out, he's thinking, how can they identify the body? And if he's dismembering people, clearly he's paying attention to how you identify people. So, I've never heard of anybody doing that as a, or read about anybody doing that as a part of a, a signature. Well, the question may harken back to like the, the theory that we kind of threw out, just suggesting that possibly 
list belongs to a group of people that objects to tattoos for religious reasons. It's going to be a very narrow group of people. Yes, well, yes, it is. Actually, yes, it actually is. But, but. I mean, the Jewish faith, really, Orthodox Jews, we talked about that earlier. Uh, yeah, they, you know, you can't be buried in an Orthodox cemetery with tattoos. What? Out of curiosity, what do they do if you happen to, like, if you... Bury somewhere else. <laughs> oh, well, well I, I was just thinking, you know, I mean, generally speaking... I mean, there's no... There's usually a practical solution to everything, and I was thinking, wondering whether or not there's a... a Professional post-mortem tattoo remover. Uh, I think that something like suicides among Catholics, they, they just ignore it. I don't ask them to help. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that one was great. Good so far, guys? So far, so good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Like, uh, as I said, the other question had to do with uh, the Adin Sayed case where uh, uh, talking about facial lividity and I don't pretend to even understand what I, I don't know enough about the physical evidence I, I do know something about process as I said I've worked on cases that were 10 years old or older that were retried and it's the son of a gun to be able to get the information back and you know, basically what you have to do is reanalyze all the evidence so at least that's what I did which was an easier way of doing it rather than try and, and rationalize what was done earlier um, it makes it tough because a lot of times the evidence is lost people's memories go Particularly if it's traumatic, people really tend to uh, sort of chop up the memory. It gets to be very spotty. I think the oldest one successfully we've ever redone was a 10-year-old case. What's the uh, what's the uh, what's the most bizarre case you've ever worked on? Not while we're reading. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, you gotta understand, understand our comment. First of all, Julian is my son, and I don't think he has a kind of. No? What, do you want to eat first? No, I've, I've heard enough about the river right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It would be very hard to be a family member and, and, and find... find yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, any, any group of people called Team Cephalus has got to be a little strange. Well, we did start with a discussion of... Uh, syphilis in uh, Whitechapel in 1888. Uh, I mean, some people may not find it fascinating, but it, it, it came out of a discussion of uh, occupational hazards of prostitutes in 1888. And what 
it may or may not tell us about the Ripper himself. Could he have been uh, afflicted? Oh, I mean, I w- well, about four or five suspects, like it's re- are either known or reasonably accessed as uh, syphilitic. And the the very after there was something called the double event, which was uh, right after that, one of the first letters to the newspapers, like suggesting, uh, and I don't mean a letter sent like saying I am the you know Jack the Ripper. I'm talking about a letter to the editor, so to speak, was uh, someone suggesting that Jack could be like crazed from syphilis and seeking revenge upon the class of women that infected him. There's certain problems with that, in in that uh, Jack's victims were older prostitutes at the which I hesitate to call the lower end of the food chain. Uh, And by that point they were probably past the time when they could infect somebody. But the idea that somebody that was frequenting prostitutes being infected with syphilis and being neurosyphilitic and off their rocker actually does not strike me as a bizarre you know, uh, thesis. And more to the point, it specifically came out of discussions about the Maybrick Diary, which there's a variety of reasons to believe that actually was stolen out of Battle Crease. And the question becomes if it's actually legitimately old, then how to explain it without the author being Jack the Ripper. And if you go and look at Maybrick's wife's trial, and you look at all the medications Maybrick was taking near the time of his death, it's all the heavy metals, bismuth, antimony, strychnine, bromine, uh, and of course arsenic. Yeah, arsenic was very common for a lot of different ailments. Yes. But uh, Maybrook, when he was a younger man and living in uh, the States, was basically said to spend like all evening, every evening at bro- uh, local bro- you know, southern brothels. And his claim was that a doctor prescribed arsenic to him to deal with his malaria. I've never heard of arsenic from malaria. Correct. Hold that thought. They're right. So, if you have a situation where he was taking arsenic for much of his adult life and ever escalating amounts, you wonder whether or not it possibly dampened or uh, suppressed the, ons- you know, the, the onslaught of neurosyphilis for a while until in his 50s he finally went off his rocker and wrote a diary without being without actually being Jack the well, you have to remember too what we find with. We had a study once where we looked at it was called treatment alternative street crime, where we looked at people arrested for relatively 
innocuous crimes like prostitution. One of the things we found was that they didn't have one disease, they had several. And if he were frequenting a whole variety of different people, uh, he could have syphilis, gonorrhea, uh, hepatitis, um, uh, tuberculosis is very common as well. So, um, I, I'm not sure that any of the, the arsenic would have helped any of those, and I'm not even sure the arsenic would have helped all that much with the, uh, the syphilis. Well, don't forget that, uh, what was the magic compound? Is a, is a, is a, is a, right, is a, is a arsenic, arsenic compound. Right. Yeah, but... Well, this was right. If you if you get your your blood functions because of a, a series of cobalt compounds, and, but if you ate cobalt chloride, you would have a problem. You would have a problem. Okay, so. Oh, and also, yeah, I forget. He was also taking plumber's pills, which are a mixture of strychnine and mercury. Mercury would actually be pretty helpful if it's the calomel compound, which it usually is. The, the arsenic trioxide is too toxic. Chronic arsenic use also leads to um, irritation in the stomach, and which would make uh, a number of other problems even exacerbate right, right. So um, I would really have to think about that one if, if I were using that as a theory. Uh, well, they, they, yeah, well, they found all kinds of irritation in the stomach and the esophagus when they uh, did the autopsy. Which is hardly surprising. Including something that they described as like frog's eggs near the entrance of the stomach. Does that ring any kind of bell? Mm. Not at all. I think that's the I think the Maybrick diary is something that people really wanted to be true. Well, not among not in not in ripperology. In ripperology is kinda of like a not invented here syndrome. Like you basically all the people that uh, took umbrage to it were other Ripper authors and generally speaking Ripper authors that also had a book coming out in 1992 who found their publishing dates pushed back because of this well Oh, uh, within, within Ripperology it's, it, it's widely held to just be a, a, a shoddy hoax I tend to agree with that.
It, it's until something new is found. It, it, it's I think insoluble. I, I think most sane rockologists are of that mindset. Which does not mean that every year you won't come up with new suspect books, but uh, they're 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 in every single one of them. Unfortunately, has a flaw. Oh, I loved the, the Lewis Carroll one. That was a really, really... That was nice. Interesting. Uh, Lewis Carroll, they put uh, Alice in Wonderland and others' writings through... Uh, not a word prize. What do you call it? What do you call it? Uh, uh, an acronym. It's only a hunt for acronyms. And they found, as you would find in any document, if you look, you know, there's a famous book called The Bible Code, where someone took the Old Testament and put it through. Uh, some, I, forget what, I forget what they did. But, right, they rearranged the Bible, and it was the first letter, I think. Yes, there we go. And it, and, it, and it came out with all kinds of messages. And so there, there are messages within the writings of Lewis Carroll. And Lewis Carroll was an odd person. Although, I don't think a penchant for little girls is you know, the kind of man we're looking for. Well, even that is... Uh, greatly exaggerated. Uh, a group of people have actually looked into the photographs he took and everything, and what they found was that these girls were never alone, ever. So, what went on in his head? Yeah, yeah, right, right. What, Certainly didn't act on it. I mean, there were other, you know, Victorians, you know, uh, uh, General Gordon was notorious for adopting street urchins. Uh, so there's all kinds of. I hadn't realized that. I was reading, uh, one of the things we were thinking about doing on our next talk was going to be uh, a gentleman who's operating in upstate New York uh, around the turn of the century called the post, named the Postcard Killer uh, near Buffalo. And he would send, he, he killed children and sent Hunting postcards to parents and the police. Was that fish? Uh, no, no, Albert. Actually, uh, interesting that you say that because what we were thinking of doing was doing. Was, I think his name was Herons, if I remember correctly. Uh, we wanted to actually think of doing a talk comparing the postcard killer with Albert Fish, because Fish, as you know, was sent to the electric chair, whereas the postcard killer was successfully able to argue insanity. And I would say if, if Albert Fish isn't, you know... Well, it, it's... You know, it, old Patrick Moynihan with his defining agency down, uh, a lot of this has to do with the, the epic in which it appeared. And you know, people were less tolerant of crazy behavior. 
at certain periods, and then we've gone. I mean, to me, it was outrageous that Hinckley could shoot the President of the United States, his secretary, and a police officer on tape and walk away from it. That, that to me is just, that is astounding to me. And whatever reason he gave, however bizarre, doesn't mean he's crazy. I mean, he was planning and yeah, doing a good job. <laughs> good food. Are you all done? Yeah, I'm done. Yeah, awesome. I'll take it for you. Okay. Thank you. Are you through with yours, too? Yes. Okay. Cool. Excellent. Yeah, take it time. Take it time. Yeah, no rush. A couple more homicides to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, we, well, you skirted the issue of the most bizarre case you worked on. Because we were eating. Yes. Uh, it's <laughs> they, they, they cleared out. <laughs> they cleared out. And we'll get more space shortly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, it's, there are very few things that freak me out. This one kind of, kind of did. Uh, I'm not sure I want to tape, but... <laughs> Thus ends the, the first part. Uh,